You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. I'm so delighted to be here. My name is Eric Barton. That's Barton, B-A-R-T-O-N. I've heard from enough of you as I made it up the stairs this morning. Oh, goody, we have a guest pastor this morning. It's funny, it's real funny. I appreciate that, thank you. Yes, I'm here. I'm delighted to be here. I have very much missed being with you the last couple Sundays as we've been traveling, but we're back, and we're delighted to be with our church family where we get to be about the business of the gospel. The good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem people to himself and to one another. It's the greatest story ever told. It's an awesome announcement. God has done a thing, and so we have a thing, and now we do a thing. That's the gospel. And we believe it. And that sort of dictates, frames, and drives all that we do here. And so this morning, I want to, well, I want to give a special welcome to anybody who's visiting with us. We're delighted that you're here. We would love for you to either uh, fill out one of those cards in the seat back pocket in front of you, let us know that you were here, drop it in the folder on your way out, or you can simply text us your email or your phone number to this number, just let us know that you were here. We would love to circle back with you and figure out if this is a place where God is leading you to engage. We believe that the local church is God's plan for your life. I cannot say that more directly, more strongly. We believe that the local church is God's plan for your life, and so we want to help you get engaged in this one. But if it's not this one, we want to help you get engaged elsewhere because we mean it that strongly. Now, speaking of this church, I want to let you know a couple things that are going on in the life of our church. Number one uh, is on Sunday, August 5th, during this hour, the 1030 service hour, we'll be having an information meeting for any and all who are interested in being a part of our prayer team. Colleen Long and Jim Phillips are heading that up, and they really feel like, man, this is the time with what's going on in our world, in our church, in our community, that we need to be a praying people who come together with discipline and with direction, and we pray. So if you would like any more information about that, they're going to meet on Sunday, August 5th at the second hour, and they're going to talk about some strategies and some ways that they can support this church in prayer. You might hear that and go, oh, gosh, prayer, that's... That's like for women. Mm, yes, it is. It's also for men. It's also for young people. It's for anybody who actually has the capacity because of the indwelling spirit of God to approach his throne of grace with confidence. We want to invite you to be a part of that. Then, before that, next Sunday, we as a congregation get to vote on and affirm the candidates that our elders have affirmed for elder and deacon. At this campus, we have uh, affirmed Dan George to serve in the role of elder, and for deacon, Dash Connell and James Van Dyke. Our elders have reviewed them, interviewed them, and their brides, and approved them. We as a campus and a congregation get to affirm that via vote if you are a member, and we vote on all uh, for the candidates for all three campuses. You might say, well, I don't know those people at that other campus. That's okay. Either don't vote or Trust that the elders have done a good job in screening that, and this is all part of what God's doing in this church. That is next Sunday. You must be a member to vote. If you're not sure that you're a member, man, let us know. You can email me, email Mike. You could email Matt, but that's not going to get you very far. Let us know if you're curious about your membership status. We would love to resolve that with you. Now, 
I've been away a while, and I've been thinking about, praying about you, our church, our congregation, our people. What would the Lord have me say to us? And as is always the case, every time I ask that question, he speaks to me. And he pulls back a curtain and shows me some darkness, and I go, ew, okay, I'm not telling them that. And then we wrestle and I lose. So let's pray together and we're going to dig into this. All right? Please join me in prayer. Our Father God, in the power of your Spirit and in the name of our Lord and Savior and King Jesus Christ, help. Amen. I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to the little book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter. If you don't know where that is, just go to your maps, hang a left, you'll be there in no time. 2 Peter, you probably don't spend an enormous amount of devotional time in 2 Peter, but it's a good, good read. While you're turning to 2 Peter, I want to tell you about a friend named Travis. It's actually, he's not a friend, he's more like an acquaintance, um, and his name's not really Travis. Grew up with this guy, we'll call him Travis. Travis uh, finished high school, uh, got married, made a flaming train wreck of his life, got divorced, um, kids and ex-wife moved to a different place. Travis moved back home with his parents where he lives to this very day. He's my age. We graduated together. He lives at home. His parents are actually quite affluent. They travel. They enjoy life. Travis still lives at their home, um, making about, I don't know, 75 times a day some really heated, obnoxious political statement on Facebook. Yay! Travis pretty much eats nothing but gas station burritos and is an utter complete waste of space. And it's terribly tragic. We think it's all funny, but it's actually sad. A complete and total failure to launch. And anyone can look at it and see it and go, man, that's, there's, just, there's a stuntedness there. There's, a, there's a, a natural designed thing that has just been hampered and there's just never been any growth whatsoever. And it's a mildly amusing thing until you realize all the ingredients were there. His sister is on faculty at an Ivy League school in Massachusetts. Meanwhile, he's eating sour cream and salsa pork rinds every day of his life. This incredible disparity. This lack of growth is troublesome. And I thought about that this week because I thought, gosh, how many of us, me first, me included, it's not that we haven't grown socially or financially or relationally, but that we have never actually grown spiritually. Like perhaps we believed the gospel at one point, the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another, and we had this incredible eureka moment. We said, yes, my chains are gone. I've been set free. And maybe we even got a job for the summer at some camp and we got a designer thermos and some chacos and we were really on fire. And then about three years went by and it was over. And we just sort of been in idle. We've been stuck. We haven't grown or gone forward in the slightest in years. Maybe for many of us, if we're being totally dead level honest, our greatest moments of spiritual maturity and vitality are way far in the past, which is a terrible way to live your life. My dad always used to say, remember, in your car, the rearview mirror is always smaller than the windshield. 
But if all you're ever doing is looking in the rearview mirror, you are missing the whole of life. So this morning, I want to talk about spiritual growth, which is actually going to lead us in our passage, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, to our big idea, our sort of summary, synthesized sentence for the morning. It's pretty simple. It's three syllables. It goes like this. Christians grow, which is wildly convicting even for me. Because what I hear as I read this passage and many others like it is that there is no such thing as idle or static. Christians grow or they regress. Every single thing in our world is trying to work against Christian growth. So we have to be equipped, optimized, and unleashed to deal with that resistance. What if there was an evangelist? What if there was an apostle by the name of Peter? And with the very last breath in his lungs, the very last strength in his hand, he writes a letter. We know that 2 Peter is the last thing that that Peter ever wrote, at least the last thing that we have, that he's probably incarcerated in Rome right alongside Paul. Whether they saw each other there or not, we don't know. But the timing works out. They were probably in jail in Rome at the same time. It is very possible, we don't know for sure, that Peter and Paul both stood before Nero on the same day, though not together. Peter knows he's going to die. You might remember at the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus tells Peter, Peter, there's going to come a day when you're going to be led away and someone else is going to change your clothes and they're going to lead you where you don't want to go and that will be your end. Peter says, whoa, well, uh, I, I, that sucks. Uh, I'm not looking forward to that, but, but, but what about John? What about John? And Jesus says, that's not your issue. You go and you grow. Peter, you follow me. And so for 30 years, the apostle Peter has done precisely that. He's bounced back and forth between Antioch and Rome, strengthening, building, blessing, bolstering the church. And now he's in jail. And he knows he's not going to get out of this one. Tradition tells us he was hanged upside down on a cross because he did not think being crucified in the same fashion as his Lord and Savior, that he wasn't worthy of that. As the last thing he's going to write, what do you think he would say? This is my last shot to bless the church. Imagine the emotion that's going through his head. Imagine what he has seen the Lord do over these last three decades as the church has begun to flourish. He's in Rome. This Galilean fisherman is in Rome. He remembers the night that he looked across a courtyard over a campfire and he saw his master make eye contact after he had denied him three times. I don't know him. I don't know him. I blankety blank, blank, blank don't know him. And the rooster crows. And the God of all grace and sovereignty, against all expectation, restores him, instills him with dignity, purpose, mission, and charges him to lead, love, guide, and guard the church. What's the last thing that guy is going to say to the church before he dies? Well, it's 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter's going to tell us what does it look like to grow. I'm going to read the whole passage in its entirety. I want you to hear the whole thing, and then we'll try to unpack it as briefly as we can, and uh, we'll see how we can apply it. So, 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Simeon Peter, 
a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is God's word. This is Peter's last will and testament, as it were. Peter's writing to correct a fallen condition that has already began to seep into the church. And so with the last strokes of his pen, he wants to reverse that and say, no, do not conform to the image of this world. Do not get into the flow. You are to be diligent. You are the redeemed. You have obtained the faith. Now, let's unpack this a little bit. The greeting, chapter 1, verse 1. Simeon Peter a servant and apostle. I got to level with you. If I'm an apostle of Jesus, where I walked with him, talked with him, had breakfast with him, he gave me direct authority and instruction. I'm starting with that one. Peter, an apostle, all caps, underlined, highlighted, smiley face emoji, and a servant. Not Peter. See, Peter has proper perspective of who Jesus is. Oh, they were friends without question. Peter understands that he is a king. Peter never called Jesus, my boss is a Jewish carpenter. The man upstairs is the big guy. I'm a servant first. Oh, and I'm also an apostle. But I love that sequencing, that order. Peter identifies, I am a servant because Jesus is a king. We don't get that in the West. We, we kind of have a tendency to go, oh, kings, they're bad and potentially evil. But not this one. Not this one. He is a king. He is sovereign. And the good news is, he is good. Peter says, I am his servant. I am not voting for him. No, in fact, against all hope, he voted for me. Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. To those, the redeemed, the church, who have obtained a faith, they've received it, it's come to them. They didn't discover it. They didn't work for it, nor did they earn it, nor achieve it. They have received it. It came to them. They have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. This is incredibly scandalous. 
Peter says, anybody who has received the faith has the exact same caliber and quality of faith as mine, an apostle. There are no super faiths. You may feel like you have a little bit of flimsy faith. That's something else happening altogether. You have obtained a faith which is of the same quality of mine. Peter's actually using immigration language. Save your emails, relax. But he's using immigration language in this word. He's saying, it doesn't matter if you're from Rome or you're from North Africa or you're from Gaul or you're from Syria. It doesn't matter. You are a citizen of Rome because it has been granted to you. Do you not see? My citizenship is in heaven. I serve the king. And if you have obtained and received the faith, yours is as well. There is no difference in the quality, the character, the depth the vitality of our faith. Those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness, the the account, the full measure of the righteousness of heaven found in the person of Jesus who opens up his stores and gives it to those whom he calls. Wow. That's who you are, whether you know it, feel it or not. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. (laughs) Make a note, 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, one of the most clear declarations of the deity of Christ in the whole of the Bible. I still have people very regularly say, well, you know, the Bible never actually says that Jesus was God. And I go, okay, which, 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 which Bible is that that you're reading? Because, I'm sorry, I think that's actually a box of cocoa pebbles, sir. That's not, that, no, it doesn't say that there. But in the Bible, pretty much every page of the New Testament, you can't go through a paragraph and not see the deity of Christ. He was not merely a pathetic martyr, not a nice rabbi, not a good guy, not just a a swell dude, a pretty good stonemason. No, 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 no. He's very God of very God and a very man of very man. The Bible definitely, definitively declares as much. Number two, verse two. May grace and peace be multiplied. You see, I'm a lot like Peter. Church tradition tells us he was a redhead. He's kind of dim, made a lot of mistakes. This was my man. I dig this guy. But Peter likes math. I hate math. Peter says, may grace and peace be exponentially increased. May it multiply, a force multiplier in your life. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. By the way, Peter's telling us something astonishing. It's the same thing that Paul always tells us. There is no such thing as peace without having first received grace. Our world for millennia has tried every conceivable mechanism to achieve and obtain peace apart from grace and they will never find it. Whether in the streets of Babylon or in the alleys of Manhattan, you cannot have legitimate, authentic, long-lasting peace apart of having received grace. And that's deeply offensive because that means that somebody else out there has to act upon me. That's right. You cannot accomplish nor achieve nor earn it yourself. Grace always precedes peace every, every time. You will never find it in the pages of Scripture where peace precedes grace ever. If you do get a different translation, it's wrong. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. How is that going to happen? How are grace and peace going to be multiplied? Well, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. That's how grace and peace get not just increased but multiplied exponentially increased is our knowledge of God and Christ well how does that happen 
We deeply consider. We meditate on Him. Him! Not just a bunch of head knowledge about what He did. What were Bible times like back then? Oh, I bet it wasn't 107 degrees back then. Who knows? Who cares? But knowledge of Him. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says, We, the redeemed, with ever-increasing glory, as we behold Him, are being transformed into His likeness. Because you see, brethren and sistren, you and I can't help it. We will always become what we behold. You want more grace and peace in your life? Behold the Savior. Meditate on Him day and night. What is He like? What does His voice sound like? What would it be like to walk with Him bodily, viscerally, physically? Because one day you will. What's that going to sound like? Let me ask you a strange question. What does it smell like to be with Jesus? I don't know, but I'm going to tell you, I imagine it all the time. What must it be like in his presence today, knowing that those whom he loved spat on him, knowing that the thief that hung next to him is with him? What is it like to be with him now? What would he say to me? Do you know how desperately he wants to embrace me even right now? The more I behold him, my grace and peace multiplies. Or, or I can turn on my XM or FM or AM radio and listen to talk shows, talk about the evils of everyone else other than me. And I turn into a shriveled cigar store Indian facade of a wasted, useless human being. I'm just saying, there's a value, there's a place for talk radio, I guess. But you become what you behold. Careful little eyes what you see. May grace and peace be multiplied to you, he says in verse 2, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. This Lord has done something. Verse 3, His divine power has granted by grace a gift. It is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. Not knowledge about Him. Knowing Him. Understanding Him. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. This is perhaps one of the most convicting verses in the whole of Scripture. And here's why. Peter's right when he says that Jesus' divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. In other words, I have been given already, in the past tense, I am already and now the recipient of everything I can possibly need for life, godliness, grace, and peace. And so when I enter into sin, not if, but when I do, it is my refusal and my failure to believe this verse. So I know you say you've given me everything I need for life and godliness, but I think I also need this. And so I'll grasp for a feeling, for an emotion, for an opportunity to release my rage, to, to do this or that or the other. It's a failure to believe the gospel that all that I need for life and godliness has already been granted freely by grace. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. I love this passage. This is such great counseling for the guy in my bathroom mirror. We have been called to excellence. That doesn't just mean high caliber, high quality. Excellence, diaphero. It means that which is carried through. We've been called to live lives now, in the immediate, in the temporal, live lives 
in which all that we are is carried through into eternity. And I just wonder how much of my day is spent building, brushing, bolstering things that are not going to get carried through. It means they're not excellent. Excellence is that which is carried through. I want my life to look very much in some ways like this. I want to be intentional about building my life with things that are carried through. The washing my wife with the word of God, the infusion of wisdom into my sons, the meditating, the teaching of God's word, those things are excellent. That's what I want to be carried through. Oh, well, I also happen to have a really sharp lawnmower blade. No, actually I don't, and it wouldn't matter if I did. I'm not saying we shouldn't have those things. I'm saying, what do we really value in our lives, in our existences? Well, verse 4, by which he has granted. Do you see all the repetition of grace, giving, gift, grant, grant, giving? By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them, his promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, becoming like the one that made you. No, you and I will never, ever become gods. That's not the plan. That's not what this is about. But we will become godlike in character, in perspective, in wisdom, in concern for others. He communicates some of his attributes to us. His compassion, his kindness, his love, his mercy, his givingness. We become increasingly like him. That's how we are partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Everything in our world is working against Christian growth. Our fallen world is saying, no, do not grow. But Peter knows this because Jesus knew this and Jesus taught Peter this. And so now Peter's going to give us, and starting in verse 5, what I like to call the magnificent seven. Some theologians call it the golden chain. I find that boring. I like the magnificent seven. There was gunfire. There was Yule Brenner. I'm calling it the magnificent seven. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, this is what it looks like for a Christian to grow because Christians grow. Verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort, marshal all of your resources, all of your energies, all of your relationships, all that you are. Make every effort to supplement your faith. Ah, I've got to stop here for a second. To supplement your faith. This word supplement that he uses is very clever, very non-Peter-like. It's super clever, super interesting. In ancient Greece, the chorus of a theater, uh, the finances for that would be supplied by the state. The state would find all the different actors, musicians, players, blah, 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 blah. The state would supply that. But the chorus director had to supply all of the resources, all of the supplies, all of the funding for them. So if they needed food, if they needed recreation, if they needed drink, if they needed whatever, the director had to supplement. They needed Fiji water in the green room. They needed green M&Ms. They needed gluten-free bread, whatever they needed. The director had to supply all that. Peter says, I want you to have that mindset. You're going to supply these things as a resource in abundance to your faith. Listen to what he says in verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. Now, when Peter says faith, he means something. I hear people even these days say, well, I'm a very faithful person. I'm a very, uh, I'm a person of faith. And I go, great. Faith in what? Well, you know, faith in something, like that there is something. Like, great. I'm pretty sure that there is. We are agreement. What is the thing in which you have faith? Well, you know, uh, you die and stuff 
changes. Like, okay, we're not making progress. Faith in what? And here's what I would say. There are three components, three ingredients to faith, three legs on the stool for faith. First of all, there is the content of our faith. You have to actually believe something. There is a, a corpus of information that the scripture will call the faith over and over again, and it does not change. The content of the faith goes like this. Are you ready? There is such a thing as the spirit realm. There is. Despite the hostile aggression and denial of our contemporary culture that says there is nothing other than material, we affirm that there is such thing as a spirit realm. And in that realm, there is a God. And he is good and he is sovereign. And he has not remained distant. He has involved himself in the material world by sending his son, who was good, perfect, fulfilled the demands of the law, which is perfection, moral excellence in every thought, word, and deed. And he died innocently so that the world could get righteousness while he got justice. Undeserved on both sides. We believe that. And because there is a God, there can be none other. By definition, a sovereign is sovereign and can tolerate none other. There is none other. This is the content of our faith. Those who receive, those who believe are found in him such that when they die, the sovereign of the universe says, by what basis can you spend an eternity with me? And you say, Jesus! And don't say anything else. That's the content of our faith. And we stick our foot in the ground and we do not budge on that because that is non-negotiable. That's the content of our faith. The second... Uh, leg on the stool or the second ingredient in that is agreement like that's the content I agree with that I live my whole life on that I agree with that I believe that it's true I understand it and I agree with it that's pretty simple the content of what we believe agreeing with what it is and then the third is trust so there's content there's agreement there's trust that's what faith is what does trust look like here I'll show you that's trust I trusted that this stool was going to hold me up. And trust me, it's no easy task for this poor stool. But I know this stool. This stool loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. This stool will not let me down. I've sat on this stool before. I trust that this stool will hold me. We only believe something to the extent we're willing to act on it. Peter, sitting in prison, about to die, says, Christians grow. You have faith. It was given to you. Your faith's not any less than mine. My faith's not any more than yours. You have faith. Here's how Christians grow. Add to your faith, he says in verse 5, virtue. Supplement your faith with virtue. We have to actually notice the sequencing of how these things go. This is a moral excellence, a mastery over base desires. But be, understand this very clearly. Virtue is added to faith, never being virtuous in order to get faith. We don't earn our faith. It's given, and because of what we have, because of whose we are, we act virtuously, not sinlessly all the time, of course. It's not that. Christianity has never been about taking good and decent people and making them better. That's a different thing entirely. Christianity is about taking dead people, making them alive, and increasingly like Jesus. That's Christianity. And so because of that reality, we are a people characterized by virtue, excellence, resembling our Redeemer. He continues on. Supplement faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. 
with things that are true, rightly discerned reason about our virtue, not just head knowledge, not just data. It's the pursuit of understanding of what is God like? What does God like? What does God hate? Interesting, if you really want to know what God's like, one of the most important things to know about God is that he absolutely hates something. There are things that will stir God to wrath more than any other. And it usually goes like this. Violence. Human against another. Deeply stirs the heart of God to wrath. That's good to know. Paul picks up on this in Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. He says, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge. See, our knowledge impacts our feeling. Our thinking drives, determines our thinking drives our feeling. This is a good thing. And all discernment. So that you may approve what is excellent, carried through. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. He says in 1 Corinthians 2.15, The spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is to be judged by no one. Knowledge is the fuel for discernment. We know more of God. Not just about him, more like what it is he like. And that fuels our thinking, which captivates our hearts. And grace and peace are multiplied. And we grow. Because Christians grow. Well, he moves on. After verse 5, we have verse 6. And knowledge with... I'd kind of like to sharpie this one through. because It's never been my spiritual gift. But it's in here, so we've got to talk about it. And with knowledge, we grow with... Self-control. There's sort of a progression here. Virtue, knowledge. Then we have this disciplined moderation. We might equate this with a practiced perspective. Self-control. This is sort of like a, uh, oh, how shall I say? It's like a spirit-infused beta blocker. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Y'all might remember a couple of years ago, I had this little heart event. And uh, now, praise God, I take more medicine than the 1975 Dallas Cowboys. I'm good. I'm a walking pharmacy now. It's good. One of the many pills that I take is a beta blocker, which sort of just keeps everything chill. You're thinking, you didn't take it this morning. Oh, yes, I did. But it still keeps things a little bit down here. Recently, my wife and I and family were driving around in a foreign city in a rented car in a crazy season of traffic. There were three lanes, but there were six cars behind us side by side by side. It's crazy. And we're driving around this roundabout, and I'm chill, baby. Just cool. It's not fine. It's fine. There's no problem. It's all good. Self-control is the disciplined practice of never allowing ourselves to be reactionary. One of my counselor friends, mentors, uh, many, many years ago talked about the synaptic gap of our decision-making. So it works like this. You have a, a season of life, and there's a decision before you. It's either this or this. Maybe it's fight, maybe it's flight, maybe it's freeze, but there's a, a decision, and you have to make a decision right here. He said, but the way God wired us is every time before you make a decision, in that little gap, you have to drop the cross. You are never, ever in a situation where you have to make a decision without thinking. God hasn't wired us that way. And so, wherever you decide you're going to launch on your kids, or you're going to launch on your wife, or you're going to launch on the purple minivan on Broadway, before you do that, put a little cross on that synaptic gap. That is the disciplined practice of self-control. It doesn't always work. But that's how a Christian grows. Digitally deciding in advance, Jesus is worth this. It would feel really good to just let my temper break out like water, says Solomon in Proverbs. But Jesus is worth 
me taking a breath and putting a cross on the gap. Do you see that? And the Christian grows. Praise be to God, I can move off of self-control lest you start to really evaluate me. After self-control, this is how we grow, with steadfastness. The word is to stand up under the pressure, deciding in advance. This is going to come. This is going to be hard. Winter is the season when the tree's roots grow deep. And the tree does not ask, oh my gosh, why is it snowing again? Ah!" The tree knows that it's winter and that this is the season where it puts down deeper and deeper roots. When we go through seasons of hardship, we decide in advance, ah, this is the Lord God deepening me, thickening me, broadening me, preparing me. We understand. We steadfastly stand up under. We decide that in advance. This is how a Christian grows. In verse 6, and steadfastness with godliness. We begin to resemble and reflect our maker's character. Now it's been interesting. So far this first five of the Magnificent Seven are all interior. They're all in our living space for ourselves. But inevitably, the next two have to go outward. Of course they do. Verse 7, and godliness with brotherly affection. Philadelphia is the word. Having a well-reasoned concern for others. We sacrifice something for the other's benefit. We live my life or your life for me, not my life for you. And of course, after brotherly affection with love. I actually want your good above mine. Those seven attributes of how a Christian grows, gosh, who does, that, who does that sound like? It's interesting. If you put all seven of those things together, let me remind you of what they are. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. Hmm, sounds an awful lot like, oh, what's his name? What's his name? Jesus! It's interesting. He's not just our Lord and Savior and King. He is that and our Savior. He's also our example. He's also our model. Just wonder, dads, those of you with daughters, you got an 18-year-old daughter, guy shows up, rings the doorbell, and he's a model of the Magnificent Seven. How do you feel about your daughter going out with him now? Yahtzee, you're all in. Dads with sons, have you been preparing your son to be that guy for that family because of your brotherly affection for them? Jesus is worth you pouring into your son so that he will be a blessing to that girl's father. That changes the way we begin to think. Ladies, How would you like that magnificent string of character traits to be the man that you marry or are married to? Right. Is that how we pray for them? Employers, how would you like that to be the resume of prospective employees? Yeah, that would be pretty great. This character thing matters. This is what it looks like for a Christian to grow. And as Rick Warren has rightly said, decades ago, every living thing grows. Well, let's pick this up. And in verse 8, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. By the way, there's a big difference between busyness and fruitfulness. They may look the same on the outside. They may look very similar. But there's a huge difference between the two. 
in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from before or from his former sins. Have you forgotten? Because I'll tell you right up front, total transparency, I have. I often forget the enormity, the depths, the grandeur of my sin and what I am capable of. And yet that God willingly took and takes and will take every last atomic particle of it. And Yeah, but I'm capable of some... Right. But I have been freed and removed from it. When's the last time you had the joy of your salvation restored? That's what Peter's talking about here. Verse 9. Whoever lacks these qualities is nearsighted and he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. These things produce in us an assurance. Oh my goodness, this virtuous life actually works. Dallas Willard was right. He said the virtuous life is the only life that actually works. That's right. Verse 11, for in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This verse gets me. I absolutely love it. It's the same word. We don't know how to translate it in verse 11. It's the same one that he uses earlier when he says supplement. Supplement your faith with these seven issues. Add to, add to all this. And in verse 11 he says, don't you understand? Your Savior, your King, will be supplementing you. He is providing richly for this. When you meet Him in person, either when you die or He returns, He has already been busily providing this. Not as a reward for how awesome you are, but because you diligently said, I want to. Because He's given you a new nature and a new want to. It's worth a life. Jesus, you're worth this. Let that person pass you in traffic because Jesus, you're worth this. That's virtue. It's compassion. It's kindness. It's brotherly fellowship. Jesus, you're worth this. I'll clean up that mess on the second floor because Jesus, you're worth this. Christians grow. So let me just say, there's a, a hard word, but Christians either grow or they are regressing. There is no static ground. So it's a good time to say, man, where am I really? You might have the courage to ask your spouse where they think you are, then go to separate corners. But I encourage you to have that conversation. So let me just give three very quick implications of how I hope we can practically apply this, at least in our mindsets and our thinking and our feeling. Number one, it goes like this. Give your life away. <laughs> just, just quit it. Give your life away. Understand and recognize it's not yours. Peter, a servant an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you find yourself trying to align your thinking, your thoughts, your priorities around my life, I want this, this is for me, this is gonna make me happy, this is going to do this for me, you will not have peace. You will not have peace. If you're trying to amass assets, relationships, whatever else it might be, and it's for your life, you've gone off the tracks. Good news, there's grace for that too. Give your life away. The life that you and I candidly spend about 75% of our conversations complaining about anyway, good news, you get to give that one away. And take up the risen life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give your life away. Have that mindset. This is not about my flourishing. In fact, I've already been given all that I need for life and godliness. God says so. 
congratulations. Your well-being, your flourishing, your happiness, your grace, your peace are not on you. You're dangerously unqualified for the job anyway. Number two, discipline yourself for growth. Discipline yourself for growth. I'm not talking about a legalistic, oh, I've got to get up and have a coffee with four highlighters and my Bible and Instagram it and all that kind of stuff. I'm not talking about that. But discipline yourself for these magnificent seven. Create spaces, opportunities where you are thinking thus. You are feeling thus. I challenge you, for every hour you spend with your fiscal fitness, spend some time with your spiritual fitness. For every time you spend with your physical fitness, spend some time in your spiritual fitness. Nothing drifts to good. Nobody has ever grown spiritually by doing nothing. We've created all kinds of opportunities. We have a prayer time that's launching here in a couple weeks. We want to help you get into God's Word. And maybe that seems like, ah, they always tell me to read the Bible, but I hate reading the Bible. There's this deal where like a person gets some mold in their tent and the hair turns white and it's gross and I'm out. I don't want to read Leviticus. Okay, fine, 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 fine. I always tell everybody, start with the book of John. Start with the Gospel of John. Just start reading. And you know what? We're even going to make that easy, even easier. Starting in September, we're going to preach through the Gospel of John. And we want you to read it along with us. Not just come and consume it. We want you to read the Gospel of John. Studiously, meditatively, read the Gospel of John. We're going to start in September, and we're going to preach it either until Jesus comes back or we're done. Or we're just going to preach John until we're done preaching John. Because it's going to begin to show us a little bit more clearly, I hope, every day, every Sunday, what this Jesus was like and his worth. And it's ample. It's enough. So discipline yourself for growth. Nobody, nobody has ever dropped 30 pounds by smacking a bag of Doritos. Okay? It doesn't happen. I've tried. I'm trying right now as we speak. It doesn't happen. There has to be some discipline. But Christians grow. Make the plan. Thirdly, go and grow, but don't go it alone. It's a group project. It's a team sport. Nobody has ever grown spiritually in isolation. Ever. Never once. Ever. Even the God-man surrounded himself with some knuckle-dragon Galilean fishermen that flunked out. Nobody can go this alone. You have to be in small contexts of community where people have the right to ask you hard questions, where people have the right to maybe even tease you about it because you're that close. If you've got a situation where you don't have anybody in your life that can tease you, you've built yourself up a wall in which you can sin without ceasing. Go and grow. Do not try to go it alone. If you don't know how to do that, man, we got a deacon named Tyler Sullins. It's his very heartbeat. He said the other day, he goes, man, what keeps me up at night is these people that are coming to our campus, are they known? Do people know them? Do they know people? And it, he just, it's all over him. And so Tyler, as the deacon, has just said, I'm going to own this. He loves to connect people in groups of different kinds. If you're not involved in some sort of small spiritual community, I implore you to meet Tyler Sullins. He's right over there. Wave an appendage or three. There you go. That's Tyler. He's a great guy. He's not threatening. And really, his wife is cool. So meet Tyler. We would love to get you engaged in some way. Between services, um, it's really cool. Between services, I got to stand in the foyer there and I saw Lily Morrow. And Stu said, yeah, she's five. She's about to go to kindergarten. And it took my breath away. I was there when she was born. I, was, I mean, wow. And she's little and she's perfect and she's a ginger and I love her. 
But I had the thought as I was walking back up here, man, but what if these five years later, she was still five pounds and seven ounces? We would mourn. What a tragedy that would be. And look at her. She's going to kindergarten. Because Christians grow. If you don't know, if you don't know, you don't have the faith, Statistically, there's somebody here this morning that does not know the Lord Jesus. Please talk to me, talk to Mike, talk to any of our elders, deacons, any other volunteer leaders. Go downstairs and talk to one of the baristas. We want to introduce you to Jesus. Or maybe you're here and you are a believer, but you have begun to regress and your spiritual vitality is consisting of gas station burritos. You know what? There's grace for that too. It's never too late, never too far. I want to encourage you to go and to grow. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for who you are, for what you have done, whom you have declared that we are, that you love us and you really do have a wonderful plan for our lives and it is to go and to grow. So Father, I pray if there is anyone here this morning who doesn't know you, that you will move irresistibly in their lives and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son. For the rest of us, Father, would you wake us up here in the middle of this summer with all the other things and the plans that are set before us. And would you, by your spirit, swell up grace and peace that we might have spiritual vitality to want what you want, which is for us to grow and to become more like you. God, may it be exactly as I have prayed or better because you are good and we can trust you. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.